My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church. And if you're new here today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Um, we are walking through a series called Charisma, and we're walking through all of the gifts that are described in the Bible, gifts from the Holy Spirit that God's given to Christians and to the church, not just so that we make each other feel good and all that stuff, but so that we can be an agency in the world for change. And so what we do here with one another makes a big difference what happens in our city and in the world. So it's important for us that we embrace this power called the Holy Spirit, not just this power, but this person of God called the Holy Spirit, because it's in the person of the Holy Spirit that we actually have the giftings and the talents and the skills to do what God wants us to do. Without the Holy Spirit, we would do what we would want to do, and you're still just as gifted and you're just as talented, but it's hard for you to be on God's agenda if you're not gifted with the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about two things this morning, and and those are the gifts of exhortation, which I don't know if you use that word very often, uh, and the gift of shepherding, which we might also sometimes call pastoring or caring for people. And the passage that we read earlier this morning is a a perfect blend. It's a perfect blend of exhortation and shepherding. Uh, First Peter, in chapter 5, he doesn't give us a definition of exhortation, but what Peter does do is he gives us an example of exhortation. And so when, you, when we read this passage together, it was an illustration, an example, uh, a model for us to practice of how to do the art of exhorting, because it is an art. Uh, exhorting is not just as simple as like saying nice things to people. It's something that you learn and you continuously do. Um, it's the art of building people up. And what Peter is doing is he wants to use the art of exhorting people to help release a shepherding gift among the church. So Peter, he's actually in this letter, he's writing to churches that are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. And these are churches that are actually facing trials and persecution. So it's a very fearful church at this point. A lot of threats. It's a very fragile movement. You've got to understand that this is just very soon after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, maybe two decades at most. And so the church is very new. It's very fragile, very afraid of all the persecution that's happening. And that's, prompt, that's what prompts Peter to write this letter. We know this because in chapter 1, Peter is actually, he's commending the Christians. He's saying, good job, you guys persevered. You, you went through this trial, you experienced it, and now your faith has been proven to be genuine and true. And so we know that this is the context in which Peter is writing this. And it, this is also the context that we're understanding the gift of exhortation. That exhortation is needed in the midst of faith, uh, in, the, in, in the midst of fear and discouragement. The exhortation makes the most sense when the church is uh, fearful of something or when Christians are discouraged in their walk. And so what Peter is doing is he's exhorting the churches that we need to release shepherds to build up the body of Christ. Because without exhortation and without shepherding, a Christian community, it'll shrivel it up, it'll become fearful, discouraged, and it'll lose its purpose. That's why we need to learn how to exhort and shepherd one another. Because without it, we'll shrivel up and die. We won't know what God wants for us. So in this particular passage, Peter is writing to church leaders who have experienced setbacks. You ever had a setback and you're just like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do this anymore, right? You ever had a disappointment where you're just like, ah, eh, man, I, I put two years into this, but I don't know if I'm going to keep going forward. This is who Peter is writing to at this point. Peter's meaning to say, keep going, stay encouraged, keep doing what God's called you to do. Don't give up. Continue to lead God's people. That's the point of this passage that we read here. Because Peter knows that without exhortation and without shepherding, the church will become fearful, discouraged, and lose its purpose. So here's the definition for exhortation today. 
Exhortation is verbal encouragement. It has to be verbal, maybe written sometimes, but it's the idea that it involves words. Verbal encouragement that infuses spiritual courage into people, often in the midst of seasons of fear and discouragement. The product of exhortation is what happens out of that is a community of Christians who are more rooted in who they are, their identity, and who they'll become, their destiny, and are clearer on how they are gifted to grow the kingdom of God. When we practice the gift of exhortation, what happens is people become more rooted in who they are in Christ. They understand the purpose that God has for the church, and they continue to grow in their giftings. It's almost like, um, this is kind of a crude uh, illustration, but it's almost like fertilizer. <laughs> you, add, you have to add fertilizer in order for a plant to be strengthened. And so it's the idea that we're adding I'm adding fertilizer to your life uh, in teaching what exhortation is. Uh, this, this is not a, a bunch of fertilizer, by the way. <laughs> but it's, it's the sense in which exhortation becomes that. Uh, so, for instance, somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I just, I don't know if I'm doing enough to please God. And to be honest with you, if you grew up in the church, a lot of you guys carry around that level of guilt. For those of you guys who are coming into the church for the first time or for the first time in a long time, maybe you don't carry that. But for those of you guys who grew up in the church, sometimes you carry around this guilt, like, I don't know if I'm doing enough for God. What do you do in that situation when somebody comes to you? You exhort them. You say, let me give you some good news. Let me remind you that in Jesus Christ, he's done everything that's necessary to please God. So you don't have to do more things to please God. But as a child of God, guess what happens? You get to be in this amazing relationship where God is crazy about you. And all you have to do is relate to him. And when he says things to you, just trust him in relationship and you live out obedience. But there's nothing more that you have to do to make God more proud of you. Because in Jesus Christ, he's done that. You live that out. That, that, that's like the basic foundation for exhortation. You remind people who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them, and the plans that God has for them that comes out of that. So when we practice exhortation regularly and daily, and let me, let me tell you how important exhortation is before I jump into this point. Um, God doesn't give people the gift of discouragement, Okay, so you never hear that there's a gift of discouragement in the Bible. Some of you guys are really great at that, but it's not a spiritual gift. Uh, there's never a spiritual gift of criticism uh, in the Bible. Uh, some of you guys are really awesome at that. That's not a spiritual gift. Uh, the gift of exhortation is, is a bit more than just encouragement, but it's a positive gift. Sometimes it's an in-your-face gift. But it's not the same kind of in-your-face gift as like a criticism or a negative comment or, or those kinds of things. So when we practice this regularly and daily, what happens is that we instill courage into people. You're reminding others that they're more than just church attenders. They are a son or a daughter of God. They're loved. They're purchased. They're redeemed. They're loved by the Father. They're becoming more like his son, Jesus. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works on this earth, to work for justice in the face of evil, to raise up the poor and the marginalized, to love the stranger and the foreigner, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, even to raise the dead, Jesus tells his disciples, all in Jesus's name. And when you learn to practice the art of exhortation, people walk in a way more than just feeling encouraged. When you practice the art of exhortation, people will walk away and they're like, whoa, I feel like I know myself better. 
because you spend that time instilling identity into people. People walk away feeling empowered, impressed, impassioned, installed into the mission of God. They'll say to himself, I went away for prayer, and I came back knowing myself better. I went to them feeling lost, now I feel more focused. I went to them feeling discouraged, now I'm energized. I was depressed, and now I'm excited about what's going on in my life. All because we practice the gift of exhortation in the church. When was the last time? When was the last time that you exhorted somebody where you were exhorted? We need this gift. How can we, as a community of Christ, be a convincing, a convincing witness to our city without this gift? We need this gift. On a daily basis, I probably tell myself at least 12 times, at least 12 times on a daily basis, that I suck. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't feel the same way, but maybe your words aren't, I suck. But maybe... My point is that on a daily basis, I am bombarded with thoughts and, and ideas that, tell, that I, tell me that I am not who I think I am, that I cannot do what I think I'm called to do. And so the, the predominant feeling that oftentimes I carry in my body when I'm walking around and meeting with people is, man, I suck. I'm really not equipped to do this. And I would bet that a lot of us, a lot of you feel similar to that. And maybe you don't feel like you suck. Maybe you feel like you're the best thing in the world. I don't know. So I'm speaking to, you know, a few of us here. But how could the church walk around feeling like we suck and be what we're called to be in our city? And so it's the gift of exhortation that gets us out of that. Here's a point that I want us to pay attention to. Tweet this. I think it's less than 140 uh, characters. But when you successfully exhort someone, they will no longer see adversity from the perspective of fear or discouragement. They won't see the troubles around them from a perspective of fear and discouragement, but they will begin to see it from the perspective of God and spiritual growth. After you exhort them, they'll walk away and say, I thought I was in trouble, but no, actually this adversity that I'm facing is an opportunity for growth. God's doing something in my life. I thought it sucked. I thought I was in, uh, I thought I was in some, you know, some uh, period of like, you know, darkness, but no, man, God is in the situation. He's about to turn this thing around. It's about to become a ministry for me. And so this is why we practice exhortation. We're looking way beyond just the circumstances. We're trying to raise you up and trying to see the situation from the way that God sees the situation. And so Peter actually is illustrating this for us. He gives us... Um, uh, I've been doing a little bit more three keys or three principles or four, you know, five ways, right? So, uh, you know, all you self-help people love this. Uh, so, but this is from the Bible, okay? But there are three biblical keys that I want to point out that Peter actually uses in his exhortation to uh, the leaders of the church here that we need to draw out from what he's doing so that we know how to practice biblical exhortation. Uh, Peter actually says, he says, let me exhort you. And who's he exhorting? He says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And there's three keys here that are very important for us. Key number one is what Peter does when he's exhorting the uh, churches is that he's relating his experience of suffering. He says, me too. Man, yeah, me too. Adversity, yep, I get it. But what he also does is he's saying, yep, Jesus too. You see, he says that as a fellow elder in the witness of sufferings of Christ, he says, I've been there and Jesus has been there. We know how hard it is. Relate your experience of suffering 
before you start exhorting people, you don't say, oh, I know what your problem is. That's not exhorting, by the way. <laughs> when you begin to exhort somebody, you say, man, I think I've been there before. Or I may not fully understand what you're experiencing, but I know it's difficult. There's, there's empathy involved. And the second key is then, after you're done relating, you remind them of the glory of their calling. Peter says that as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so you're reminding them, hey, okay, I know it's difficult right now. I'm not trying to remove that fact from the situation. But let me remind you that your calling will be rewarded with some, some glory. It's going to happen. It's coming. You remind them that, that, that you're re- repainting their adversity in the context of the glory that's going to come. It's, this is going to mean something. So when you exhort somebody, you relate to them, you remind them of the glory that's coming. And then thirdly is you recommission them to their responsibility. So Peter says all of this just to say, shepherd, shepherd the flock among you. He's saying to the leaders, keep doing what you're doing. Keep being responsible. You recommission them, you remind them, you bolster them. For, 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 for some of you, it's, hey, you need to stand strong on this particular issue in your workplace. There's no ifs, ands, and buts around it. You have to stand strong. In this issue, in your family, you have to dig in and not compromise. You've got no choice. You see, he's recommissioning them to their responsibility. They already know they have a responsibility. They already know that they have to shepherd the flock. But Peter's saying, let me charge you again in case you forgot that you heard from God yourself. Keep doing what God's called you to do. So when you exhort people this way, when we do this, just as Peter does, you're not just flattering them. You're not saying, well, you're a great singer today. You're not saying, oh, Adam, that was great. Man, when you hit the B uh, sharp, oh my gosh, I was like trembling. That's, so the, <clears throat> that's, not, that's not an exhortation. Okay, it's not complimenting somebody. It's not just flattering somebody. But you're giving them a better perspective on a tough situation. You don't deny the difficulty. You're not removing the homework that's involved. You're repurposing adversity in people's lives when you exhort them. You're saying this means more than what you're experiencing right now. They're just trying to look to end their suffering. When you exhort them, you're saying, no, the suffering means something in your life. Keep going. You're reminding them that their value isn't in success or failure. It doesn't matter if it looks like you're failing in this circumstance right now. Keep going. It means something in your life. You're going to discover what it means to be in Christ and not have to cling to success and failure if you keep going at this. And probably more importantly, the influence that you will gain out of this adversity is what God wants to do in order for you to minister to other people in the next season. Here's another thought. Your greatest adversity usually becomes your greatest story. And your greatest story, story usually becomes your greatest ministry. Some of you, five years from now, you're going to be walking around and you're going to be loving people and caring for people and you're going to be helping people get to the next level only because today you were walking through adversity. Your greatest story comes from your greatest challenges, and it's from your greatest challenges that God will use, even your failures and mistakes, to love, minister, reach people, 
in the next season. So oftentimes, your influence is correlated, your future influence is correlated to the fire that you're experiencing right now. So good news, if you're in the fire right now, you're going to have a lot of influence a couple years from now. If you're in the thick of it right now and you're struggling, you're just like, I don't know, and you're afraid and you're discouraged, good news, keep going, be around the people that exhort you, don't be around the negative Nancys and the complaining Kellys, sorry. Uh, be, be around the exhorting Edwards. Or, because in a couple of years, your adversity is going to mean your influence. Uh, from a psychological standpoint, so maybe you're not super religious and you're thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds like really, uh, really good and all, but uh, from a psychological standpoint, exhortation makes complete sense. It's, it makes total sense. Uh, you don't have to be super religious to understand why exhortation uh, is important why, uh, and why it makes sense. Uh, modern research is showing us that, you know, so Sigmund Freud said that, you know, one way to overcome um, uh, anger or depression or fear and discouragement uh, is to merely express it. And if you express it, then you empty yourself of those things. You know, and not that Freud was completely wrong about that, but modern research is showing us that in psychology, it's not just about emptying yourself of those feelings. As a matter of fact, modern, uh, a lot of studies that have come out are showing that actually what happens is that you postpone your fear and discouragement, and oftentimes it comes back, you know, with a vengeance. And so there's a sense in which um, um, uh, people who have optimism about life are not those who just have learned how to express their fears and discouragements, but it's those that have been able to walk through them, overcome them, outlast them in order to find meaning in them. Um, I'm going to completely ruin a movie or a book for you, but have you seen or read The Life of Pi? It's a great movie. You can Netflix it right now. Uh, it's about a, a young boy who his father took him to the zoo and forced him to watch this tiger eat this goat. And from that point on, he was like deathly afraid of tigers. Uh, and so through a set of circumstances, uh, Pi finds himself uh, in the ocean, stranded on a lifeboat, and, you know, who would have guessed that his only companion on the lifeboat was a full-grown adult tiger, right? Um, so, uh, which was named, oddly enough, Richard Parker. And so this whole time, Pi is talking to Richard Parker, the, uh, the tiger. And obviously, if you're, if you're Pi, the whole time you're, you're freaked out. But it's amazing, and the, the point of the story is that in the midst of him being on this boat, that he actually, as a young boy, he develops these alpha qualities that eventually he's able to tame Richard Parker. His fear of being eaten by the tiger, actually he overcomes that by developing alpha qualities about himself, so he begins to tame the tiger himself. And it's in the process of taming the tiger and overcoming and just not getting eaten by the tiger that he lasts 227 days on the lifeboat. And eventually the boat drifts to, I think it's the shore of Mexico or something like that. And Richard Parker runs off into the jungle and he's left stranded on the island at this point. And he's a bit relieved, but he feels very sentimental because it was Richard Parker, his greatest fear that helped him to survive. And the moral of the story, I think, and you can kind of read uh, you know, the cliff notes because they debate the moral of the story, but I think uh, the idea is that if you master the tiger, you'll get to your destination. 
that if we master the tiger, we'll get to the destination. In the church, exhortation is God's tool for us to tame the tigers of fear in our life so we reach our destiny. That's the importance of exhortation. It's the number one tool that we're using to help tame the fears and the discouragement and the disappointments and the number of times that you want to quit on this thing. It's, it's the gift that we're using to tame all of that so we can reach the shores of where God wants us to be as individuals, but especially as a community. So let's tame some tigers this morning. If you're, if you're doubting your faith this morning, if you, you're in this place where you're just like, I thought I believed and I don't know why I do believe. And first of all, the important thing to know is like everybody doubts. But in the midst of doubting, you are not fe- you're not failing God. That if you persevere through doubts, that you will find that on the other side of doubts that you understand more of God. And by God's decision, I don't know how this all works out, but by God's decision, if you persevere to the other side, you actually end up understanding God more in different ways that a lot of other people won't and don't. If you're facing doubt, let me exhort you. Keep believing. If you're in a crisis, you just don't have enough money, you don't know where you're going to live, if you feel like you just don't know the next step and you just feel like every cell in your body is just anxious all the time, you're not falling apart. I know for some of you guys, it just feels good to know that, hey, I'm not falling apart. I feel like I'm falling apart, but you're not falling apart. You don't have to fall apart. Sometimes God takes you in the fire because he wants to refine you. And it's in the shedding of all of those things that you begin to realize and you cling to this deeper faith that God is actually walking you through that. If you are depressed or anxious, you're not going crazy, by the way. I think we have a whole entire series of of that uh, a couple of uh, months ago that we did. But if you're depressed or anxious, you're not a crazy person, okay? Uh, God can take you into the darkness because oftentimes it's in the darkness where you look for the light. The danger of depression and anxiety is that when you're in the darkness, you try to create your own light and sometimes that light can burn you. God will turn it on. God will turn on the light for you. Keep persevering. If you are leading on empty, if you're at work or you're a church leader or you're a mom and you're just empty all the time, and you feel like you've got nothing else inside of you, let me exhort you. God is in you. You are not empty as you think. God is in you. If your habits and addictions, if they seem like they're winning, and I've been been there, man. I've been there where I'm like, I don't think this thing will ever end. I don't think I will ever master this. I don't think I will ever overcome this struggle. I don't think I will ever think differently. If you feel like your habits and your addictions are winning in your life, you have to remember that on the cross, Jesus died for each and every one of those things that he resurrected to prove, to prove as an objective reality that you will overcome your habits and addictions. It doesn't feel that way, but there is an objective proof. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said, new life, it is yours. It's coming to you. You're learning to live it day by day. Let me exhort you if that's you. Keep going. Keep going. Paul writes in Romans 12, 8. It's a very short line when he's talking about spiritual gifts. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, 
He's meaning that if you're gifted in this way, if you're good at doing this, or if you just feel like you look around people and you just see like they're zombies and I need to bring life to them, the apostle Paul is saying, man, do this. If your gift is, is exhorting, don't hold back. Be your part in the body by exhorting people. There are many people around you day by day where they're bombarded by thoughts that bring them down. You be the person to bring them up, to remind them who they are in Christ, to remind them that they have a destiny, a glory in Christ. You be the person to bring them up. This is your role in our church. Our leaders need you. Our trailer driver needs you. Our kids' ministry needs you. Our local engagement needs you. We need to hear, keep going, pastor. Keep going, worship leader, leaders. Keep going. Everybody in our church, you don't just say that to just those that are the down and outs, but you say that to those who are even in the midst of their height of influence. You're saying, keep going. We need this gift in our church. If you've been holding back, don't hold back. To, after today, don't hold back. Send it out in emails. If you're the kind of person you're kind of introverted, you know what? Emails is just as good sometimes. If you're very extroverted, tone it down just a little bit, okay? <laughs> People need to hear the affirmation as well. This is huge. This is huge. Words of affirmation for some people is the very thread in which is, it's the, the difference between continuing and quitting. And if you're gifted to exhort people and you're going to be the difference maker between them quitting or continuing to go on, then you need to step up. Do this in our church. All right. So now that we understand what Peter is trying to do when he says, I exhort you, this is what he's trying to do. Let's look at what he's actually exhorting them in. And he says it's shepherding the flock. In this passage, Peter pairs the gift of shepherding with this office, this position in the church called uh, an elder. In ancient culture, an elder, usually he was a a mature person uh, who made decisions on behalf of the community. He kept the community uh, united and focused Um, And so the New Testament church uh, picked up on this model of leadership. And so when churches were planted, the apostles like Peter and Paul, they appointed elders in each church. And we're not talking about like huge churches, but probably churches about our size. And there were about three or four guys that were leading the church in this way. And remember the context that Paul's writing, because these leaders aren't like, you know, let's take the hill type leaders. These leaders are like, is this worth it kind of leaders? Like we've, we, these, this stuff keeps pressing in on us. They keep persecuting us. Is this worth it? This is the, the conversation that the leaders are happening, and this is the conversation in which he's trying to tame their tigers and re- reminding them of their response, responsibilities and their gifts. He's saying to them, don't lose sight of your mission. If you're a leader in our church, don't lose sight of your mission. Don't lose sight of your influence that God's given to you. Right now, as Mike and I were praying through, God, would you raise up elders in our church? We passed our three-year mark. We turned three about a month and a half ago as a church. We're saying, God, would you raise up elders in our church that care for people the way that Jesus cares for people, but also cares for our city the way that Jesus cares for our city? God, would you raise these kinds of people up? And so, uh, because we believe that the healthiest version of us is a church being led by healthy elders, healthy leaders. 
And so we've been praying that for some time, and we're hoping and praying. We're praying for individuals, and we're praying for people in our church that you would, you would hear that call. You would hear this, that we're looking for elders in our church, and you would hear that, and you're saying, I don't know if I can be an elder soon, but I want to become an elder. Right? I aspire to be an elder soon, and let me work my way. Uh, there's a list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we use as a guide. Let me look at those 14 things. I know it's very daunting if you ever read that. Um, but we're, we're looking at that, and we're saying, God, would you summon, would you call, would you, would you awaken some people to say, man, I, I want to aspire to do that in the church. So what does it mean to be a shepherd uh, in the church? What does it mean to be gifted in this area? Shepherding is overseeing the spiritual condition of people by providing emotional, mental, and physical care. Why? To help them in overcoming stumbling blocks to spiritual growth and to help them overcome stumbling blocks to their pursuit of the kingdom of God. This is what shepherds do. If you're a leader, if you're shepherding in this church, that's your primary lens in which you view your leadership. For some of us, maybe you're not going to be an elder, but it doesn't mean that you're not gifted with this gift of shepherding people. It is so necessary that if you lead a ministry team, if you're leading a BLG, that this is the mindset that you're shepherding people, okay? Because, listen, you're not trying to solve people's problems as a shepherd. That's not your role. But what you're trying to do is you're overseeing their condition so that through community, and through their response to God, that stumbling blocks would be removed out of their way. It's not your job to be the best counselor. And so when we say shepherding, we're not saying that you're a great counselor necessarily. But you're really good at your, you just, you keep tabs on people. You just know where they're at. And I would say that if you're leading a ministry in our church, man, this is huge. This is a very big part of our leadership model is that you know how to keep tabs on those that are under your influence and care. Four questions that a shepherd leader asks. And so you may be saying, okay, if I, may, I feel geared towards this way, I, I care about people's spiritual growth, I care that they actually just don't show up, but I really want them to grow in their relationship. What kind of questions should you ask yourself if that's where you're at right now? First question is very, very, uh, it's kind of the directional question, is how can I help this person move from being a taker, consumer, and abuser to a giver, producer, and healer? How do I bring them along this journey where they're kind of like a child right now and they just consume all the time, but I want to get them on this journey where eventually they're producing and they're helping and they're healing other people. When Lynn and I, we used to do a recovery ministry. It was kind of like a 12-step ministry. We would always say this. We would say, healed people, healed people, but hurt people, hurt people. And so how do you get them on this trajectory of going from hurt to healed so that they can be used by God to heal people. Second question, and then you begin to ask yourself is, okay, well, let me assess what is the condition of these people or this person? Where are they at truly? Let me find that out. Thirdly is, what is the resource God, what's the resource God's given me to improve their condition? What is in my hands right now? Or what is located nearby me where I can use that resource to help improve their condition? And then fourthly, so that how can they become more integrated and integral in our community? And so we've seen people come and go in our church, and that's just the nature of downtown. But by and large, when people get to the process in which they're getting ready to break through and they're getting ready to heal, they're getting ready to get closer into our community, they step back because sometimes healing hurts. 
And so it's the shepherds that say, keep going. You need to stay in this. You're getting ready to see a breakthrough. You're getting ready to see freedom in your life. But we've seen so many people in our church that get to that point where there's a line that they have to decide. There's a decision that they need to make, but there's nobody carrying them across that line. And so they step back. And not only do they step back from uh, this community, they begin to step back from God themselves. And it's the shepherds. It's the shepherds that are saying, cross that line. We'll help you cross that line. We need that in our church. We'd be a church of 500 people in three years if we didn't have so many crazy people leave our church because they got issues. I got issues, okay? I got issues too. But I'm just saying, when people get to the point where they're close to health, they're so close to health, and they step back for whatever reason. I don't know. Proverbs says that sometimes dogs like to go back and eat their vomit, and I'm not saying that about those people, but we have that tendency inside of us. Then when we're close to healing, we step back because there's some comfort over here in knowing that if I don't heal, at least I get to complain or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that people want to be victimized, but sometimes people want to be victimized. And so it's the shepherds that say, keep going. Take the step. Plug in community. Go to that thing. I'll read the Bible. So keep, keep going. We need the shepherds to say that. All right, I'm running out of time. Um, <clears throat> Peter exhorts the elders, and he addresses them. Uh, uh, when I say that he exhorts the elders, I don't want us to tune out and say, well, I'm never going to become an elder. Um, but I want you to pay attention to how he exhorts the elders in this passage, because you have levels of influence uh, in your workplace, uh, in your community, in your children's schools, that this applies to you just as much. It's what I call the attitudes of a shepherding heart. These are the attitudes that Peter is addressing of anybody who is in a shepherding position that your attitudes should be this way. And the first attitude that um, uh, Peter says is shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Pay attention to the people who are around you, not to the people who you want to be around you, (laughs) not to the people who will eventually become around you, not to the people that used to be around you, Take care of the people that are around you now. We have this saying in church planting, uh, uh, you know, people who start churches, we have this saying for pastors, pastor the church that is among you, not the church that's in your head. Because the church that's in your head is always like close to perfect, but not the church that's among you. You have 12 people that are in your care right now. Shepherd them. They don't look and act the way that you wish they would because you wish those other people would join you. And you realize this, right? When those other people join you, they're just as messed up as the people that are around you right now, right? You realize that, right? Okay. So he's saying, if you got 12 people around you, shepherd those people. If God's giving you three people to really care for, care for those three people. If you've got one person in your life, if you've got one person on your team, you better care for that person because that's the person that God's giving you. If you've got nobody around you, you better find somebody to care for. Shepherd the flock that's among you. Secondly, the second attitude is exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. This addresses motivation. Some people lead and care for people because, you know, in in vocational ministry, it's a paycheck. Terrible reason to be in ministry, by the way. If some of you guys aspire to be, you know, in full-time ministry one day. It doesn't pay a lot of money, okay? So terrible reason. Uh, But also people do it sometimes because it makes them feel good. They have somewhat of a reputation. Yeah, yeah. 
I lead a Bible study of these six people. Right? I, don't, I don't know, you know what, what happens in that psyche, but people feel that way. And so he's saying that don't do this because you're, you, you have to do it or because you, uh, do, uh, or you feel obligated. Um, get your heart right with God. Let it be from a place of love and mission and not this place of obligation and compulsion. Number three, sorry, I said this earlier, uh, not for shameful gain. And this is actually the motivations that sometimes people do it for accolades or reputation or they like being applauded, you know. I was a worship pastor for, well, geez, I'm, I'm only 36. Since I was like 12 years old, I was leading music in front of people. And when you start to get good in it, people start saying, hey, you know, you're great and you're awesome. And, oh, you know, I mean, and so it can go to your head sometimes, you know. And I remember when I started leading worship for a larger, larger church and people said, oh, I really like it when you lead. And like, I like the other pastor, but I like you more. What does that do to your head? Peter is saying, don't do it for those reasons. That's, that's a shame if that's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And so he's saying, don't do it for shameful gain. Not domineering over those in your charge. Don't be a forceful personality. Let me tell you something very important about, at least within the church, but probably in your workplace as well. But whenever you have some measure of authority, everything about your personality is amplified. And so if you're already an angry person, your authority makes you seem like a very angry person. And this is why dads have a bad reputation in the house is yelling all the time because it's not so much that we yell all the time. It's because we have authority plus our brokenness. And so Paul, uh, Peter is saying, don't, don't be domineering. Don't, go out of your way. Go out of your way to be gentle with people. And lastly, the, other, the last attitude of a shepherding heart is be examples for the flock. And he's not saying just be an example so that people know what to do. But he's saying be an example. Let people close enough to you so they can sniff you out as the real thing. Kind of like we were saying about evangelism last week. Let people come close enough to you so that they know that, man, what you're doing is consistent with your lifestyle. Be an example for them. Let people come close enough to you so that as you're doing ministry, they're learning how to do ministry with you. When you share your faith with somebody, bring somebody with you. When you begin to, you know, get plugged into the church, bring somebody with you. Never do ministry alone. Be an example to the flock. All right. Um, music's going, so that means I got to wrap up. Okay, that's fine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. Um, that says it's already 1235, so... Um, here's a couple of things to look out for. Uh, when you don't do shepherding ministry and leadership with, with this heart, eventually two, two, two really sad things will happen. Number one is that if you don't do it with the heart of people growing and people finding their place in the kingdom of God, if you do it for any other reason than that, what happens is that people begin to become dependent on you and you become their guru. And I don't think that's how this deal was meant to be. And so people become codependent on you, and that's not what you want. You want to create people who self-feed and find their place in the kingdom of God. And so if you're not doing it to help people grow, that's going to happen. Also, if you're not doing it to help people grow and release them to the next level that God has for them, eventually, after under your care, people are going to walk in ways that, I just felt used by that person. I just felt like they used me. And maybe you didn't intentionally do that. But I've had people walk away from relationship with me at times and says, I don't know if he had my best interest in mind. I just felt like he had me doing things. 
and it hurt because I was like, man, maybe I did. And so you got to make sure that when you're shepherding people and caring for people, that's because you want to see them grow so that God can release them to do the next thing that God has for them. Um, ultimately, when you're shepherding people, you lay in front of people the most vulnerable part. If you do it the right way, if you care for people in your mommy's group, if you care for people on your team, if you care for people in your BLG, if you care for people that you're ministering to on the streets, ultimately, if you're doing it the right way, you're giving them the best part of you, which is your heart. It leaves you vulnerable. And in the vulnerability, oftentimes, you can get hurt and disappointed. And if you've ever gotten that way in any kind of like uh, shepherding leadership position, can I say, keep going. Take time to deal with the hurt and the disappointment. It's so crucial. That's why we need exhortation. But have you ever been in this place where you were hurt and you were disappointed and you're just like, I don't know if I want to keep going? In ministry, let me tell you the secret in ministry, and this is not just for pastors, but anybody who wants to love people in Jesus' name, 100% of the time, you will get hurt. If you're doing it the right way, you will get hurt. The person that we sing songs to and the person that we bow down to was killed for loving people. Of course you're going to get hurt in this game. Of course you're going to get hurt. That's why you surround yourself with exhorters. You say, keep going. You're so gifted at this. I know you've been shot at. Keep going. You're doing so. There's like 15 other people that love what you're doing. Don't listen to the one who's gifted in criticism. Keep going. Don't let failure and failure and failure discourage you from trying again. Don't let rejection filter your vision for the future. Don't let slow results dictate your worth. Don't let success be your worth. Don't let influence be your motivation for leading. Don't let praise and adoration feed your ego. Don't let compliments be the way that you understand yourself. Christian leadership is so funny. It's such a funny, it's such a funny thing. Because the highs are really high when you love people in Jesus' name. When somebody accepts Christ, you're like, woo, we're doing awesome. And when you hit a dry spell, you feel like you suck. The lows are really low when you serve people in Jesus' name. You discover that you're not as great as the praises. Man, when they say, oh, you guys are awesome, you guys are great, you're not that great. <laughs> okay. But when they say, oh, man, that was terrible, that was, that was the worst set in the world, you're not that bad either. That's the funny thing. You're, you're not your highs, and you're not your lows. When you care for people and you're on this roller coaster and you remind, I'm not, I'm not the highs, I'm not the lows. I am the one that I am through Jesus Christ when he purchased me on the cross. Love how Peter ends his exhortation. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus shows up at the end of the day, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Your reward is purchased already. It doesn't matter success or failure. If you're in this game, if you're shepherding, caring for people in Jesus' name, you got the, you got the gold. It's yours. The reward has already been purchased for you. Keep going, leaders. Keep serving. Keep loving in Jesus' name. Peter ends his exhortation with close yourselves with humility towards one another. The only way to keep going is to stay humble. 
the, uh, the kingdom is upside down. The pride, prideful people, has a funny way of being brought low. And it's those of us who felt like we, we never were good enough. As much as we tried, it didn't feel like it was good enough. When you feel that, that strange sense of not so much like debasing yourself, but like, I don't know if I'm qualified or good enough to do this. It's that thing Jesus, he's so attracted that he says, that's what I want to lift up. That's what I want to raise. Those are the kinds of leaders that I want to represent my church. Not those who have it together, but those who know they struggle. I want to see those lifted high. Paul, but Peter says that in due time, in the proper time, he will lift you up. If you don't feel like you've ever gotten any affirmation from anyone for what you're doing, first of all, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. Can I say that if you've been serving or you've been loving in our community in any kind of capacity, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts as pastors of this church. But let me remind you, the greatest reward is not coming from under shepherds. It's coming from the chief shepherd. He will tell you how well you did. Last departing thought. Take this to be a farewell gift for us today before we pray. Today, God is asking you to be more in the kingdom than you thought you could ever handle because he wants to receive more glory from you than you thought you could ever give him. He's trying to squeeze out from you the glory that he deserves. When you feel the pinch in your work, when you feel the pinch in the Christian life, it's not because God doesn't see you straining or stressing, because he knows there's more glory that he can get out of you. You thought that you'd only glorify him this much. He says, no, he or she can glorify me this much. When you feel that pinch, that's what God's doing in your life. Keep going. Keep going. We invite our communion deacons to come up here. And if you're, we're going to take uh, communion together this morning. And as you take communion and as you participate in this, can I exhort those of you who have been on the fence with your faith and you don't know if you're choosing Jesus or not? I want to let you know that if you choose Jesus and if you follow him and you trust in him and you believe that your sins are real, that you are as messed up as you think that you are or suspected that you are, that all of that Jesus manages to reconcile in your life, redeem from your life, take away on the cross when he died, he removes all of those complications in your life. But if you choose him this morning, that you say, I trust Jesus with my life. He is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. If you make that decision this morning in your life, God will begin to redeem every struggle that you've ever been through, and you will see it from a different perspective. Your greatest struggle could be your greatest ministry in this world.